From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we unpack the story of the young Saudi woman, Rahaf Muhammad Al-Qunun. We speak with writer and analyst Hana Al-Khamri about Rahaf, who decided to seek asylum abroad, and we'll ask her why her case turned into a global story. Later in the program, researcher and former student activist Mohammad Pur Abdullah talks to us about the most recent labor protest by the Haftappe sugarcane factory workers in the Khuzestan province in southwest of Iran. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. In January, an 18-year-old Saudi woman, Rahaf Muhammad Al-Qnoun, sparked international attention when she took on to social media as she barricaded herself in a hotel room in Bangkok to stop Thai authorities from deporting her back against her will to her home country. Rahaf had left her family to seek asylum abroad. She said her life was in danger and that her abusive family escalated her mistreatment after she declared herself an atheist. Rahaf eventually made it to Canada, where she was granted asylum. But Rahaf's story is not unique. In fact, a growing number of Saudi women and men are leaving the country, immigrating or seeking asylum elsewhere. This phenomenon can be explained at least in part due to the Saudi state's lack of support for abused women and the overall crackdown on freedom of expression. So how did Saudi media react to the story and how do we place the story of Rahaf in the larger Saudi-Canadian relations and the status of women inside Saudi Arabia? Hana Al-Khamari is a writer and analyst who has worked in a Saudi newspaper in Jeddah and is currently based in Sweden. Al-Khamari writes for the Washington Post and Al Jazeera English, among other publications. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Women Journalists in Gender Apartheid Saudi Arabia. So there has been big coverage of the story of the Saudi young woman, Rahaf Mohammed, who escaped mm. her family when they were on a visit from Saudi Arabia to Kuwait. She left the family hoping to seek asylum in Australia. For listeners who may have missed the story, can you give us a little context and say something about the Saudi government trying to get the Thai government to send Rahaf back to Saudi Arabia? The story of Rahaf is not new, and it's not the first time. We have witnessed stories of our young Saudi women trying to escape abusive families, escaping gender-based violence, and Rahaf was one of them. She try to find a way and opportunity to run away from the, her family and seek protection. And this case is a symptom of a larger problem in Saudi Arabia because women live still in a gender apartheid state, despite all the claim for reform and changes that are taking place in the kingdom. This regime is a misogynist. It's a regime that forces women to live under the guardianship system, which basically means that women will never be an adult. You have to get the permission of your male relative, and that could be all the way from your father, your brother, and even your own son, and later on your grandson, in order to travel, to, to study, to open a bank account, or to do a basic things, or even a, issue your passport. So Rahaf uh, found the opportunity to escape 
from Kuwait because it's impossible to travel as a Saudi woman from Saudi Arabia unless you're you get your permission from your male relative to leave the country. And Rahaf is one of the luckiest tale because the Saudi regime and the Saudi foreign minister actually cooperated with the abusive family members of those victims and forced them to return back to Saudi Arabia. But Rahaf made it out and managed to reach the shore of safety thanks to all engagement in Twitter, but I believe strongly her case was treated differently because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, it sort of created a momentum and understanding that this regime could go so far to harm its own citizen. She was in a need for protection and then you need just to react to to help her. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why do you think her story received all of this international attention? Well, I believe, you know, Saudi Arabia prior to Jamal Khashoggi murder is not the same after his death. Mm-hmm. The Saudi journalists who were, you know, dismembered and brutally murdered inside the Saudi consulate in a third country. It's just unbelievable. And it shows the brutal and the true face of this you know, authoritarian states prior to Jamal Khashoggi, the current king, uh, and in fact, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who is the de facto king today in Saudi Arabia. He constructed this reform image about himself, where he also promoted uh, as, uh, where he actually exploited and used women's issues uh, through claiming to be a women's liberator, permitting women the right to drive their car, Mm -hmm. or, you know, calling for pushing women to the working force and all these things. Actually, he managed this public relation machines and propaganda to construct these images that doesn't reflect the reality and improvement of Saudi women's life on the ground. You know, the world was in a mood to believe that there are changes that are taking place in the kingdom. And I had difficulty actually to try to address the nature of the changes. I tried to be critical about the way that changes because it's very oppressive nature of changes. Mohammed bin Salman is becoming, his claim for reform was taking place in a fascist manner where he established the doctrine, you are either with me or against me, mm-hmm. where his, um, the end in his power is to consolidate his influence and power in the kingdom, not sincerely to change the statu quo uh, of women in Saudi Arabia. It's true that women are allowed to drive a car, but they, they are still live under the full control of the guardianship system. And you know, it's incredible how one thing that demonstrates how this regime indeed hates women or misogynists, it's the fact that when a young Saudi man commit crimes in the US or Canada, and then they had to stand before trial, mm-hmm. the Saudi embassies in these countries actually facilitate and provide uh, protection and facilitate plans for those kids to escape the country. While when a Saudi woman try to escape violence, uh, 
and uh, and the threat to lose her life the saudi regime conspire and cooperate with her abusive family to send them back to oppressive and abusive family members building up on that rahaf is now in canada she has been granted asylum and mm-hmm. she's been sharing pictures on social media about her new life but back in saudi arabia the media dealt yet with another pr blow to its image so can you tell us a little bit about how saudi media covered rahaf's story first of all uh, before we go into specifically uh, looking into how they covered Rahaf's story, we need to understand that there is no an independent media in the kingdom. All local newspaper, press and TV are controlled by the government. And you know, when I, I worked as a journalist in Saudi Arabia, so I often joke and describe the Ministry of Media to be similar to the Ministry of Truth of George Orwell 1984, where mm. they indoctrinate and present one single narrative, which is the narrative of the regime. And it's the only single true narrative. And anyone who attempts or try to question will be in great danger. I mean, local Saudi newspaper had to be read by officer in the Ministry of Media. And I remember when I worked in the local newspaper in Saudi Arabia, that sometime there was a delay to print the newspaper because the officer didn't manage to read. Didn't finish reading. (laughs) Yes, didn't finish reading. So despite the claim for reform and changes, there is no room for freedom of expression. You know, even the very limited and margin room that existed before the current leadership in Saudi Arabia, which were the people or the local newspaper were able to address social problems like gender-based violence or the increased number of divorce in the country or uh, terrorism or extremism ideology. And all these things has disappeared now. The only narrative or discourse that need to be presented is the narrative of Mohammed bin Salman. Mm. So Rahaf, the fact that she managed to escape and the fact that she brought all this attention, the fact that she actually, her case contributed to questioning the issue of and the claim for reform in Saudi Arabia was hard for the kingdom and for the regime to take. And also that a woman, a young woman actually managed to survive against all these oppression and patriarchal norm and structure. And Saudi Arabia is a very patriarchal country. There is a very strong patriarchal social structures and norms. And adding to the fact that the media is controlled by the regime. So, of course, Rahaf was described in an awful way. She was described as a prostitute. She was described as a psychologically damaged woman. She was described as a victim of an <laughs> award conspiracy against the two holy place, you know, the country where they host the two holy cities. So this is how the local Saudi newspaper published her case. But nevertheless, you see that on Twitter, which is the only remaining platform for Saudis to express some of their views, ordinary Saudis who try to be, uh, to hide behind pseudonyms, nicknames, they actually express solidarity. Mm-hmm. They actually try to point to the importance of ending enslaving Saudi women and the issue of the guardianship. But 
what happened the last few years is the office of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Saud al-Qahtani, who was one of his close advisor and the guy who is, you know, mastermind behind the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, mm. he set up something called Dubab al-Electroni. A whole army of like the trolls. electronic flies, e- essentially. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> trolls and flies that try, you know, constantly discredit all these voices that try to express any solidarity. And we have seen all those women who activists abroad who try to help um, Rahaf throughout her case. Uh, they have received so much hate. They've been attacked. So generally, there is no way for anyone inside Saudi Arabia to express any support for her case. Mm-hmm. Although I know that many young women feel for her and they understand that the case of Rahaf is a result of this systematic gender discrimination against women in the country that did not change. Saudi Arabia doesn't have an official constitution, but they have something, a document called the Nidam al-Hukum or the rule of governance. This document doesn't actually prohibit any form of discrimination uh, against women. It doesn't. So there is an institutionalized discrimination against women. Women still live in a gender segregated country. As I grew up in Saudi Arabia, you know, I went to public schools from all the way from elementary, uh, intermediate and high school. All female schools, public schools in the countries are labeled after numbers. For instance, the elementary of one, the intermediate of two, while all male boys schools are labeled after historical male figures. (laughs) So you are actually right from the beginning introduced into a life of invisibility, just and a a live base of gender discrimination. And you have to face all these discrimination just because of your gender. So I think the case of Rahaf, it should be a reminder of those who didn't make it. Before her, there was the case of Dina, whom we failed to protect. She used exactly the same channel, but Saudi Arabia was in a different time where, you know, the world was in a mood to believe on change and revolution and the mm-hmm. Saudi mm-hmm. false Arab Spring, you know? Yeah, it seems to me like also the timing, like you were saying, uh, has played a role because this happened at a time where there was a lot of international attention to the case of Jamal Khashoggi's assassination, mm-hmm. that perhaps there has been a momentum or an international mood that's a little more critical of uh, Saudi Arabia and MBS. And actually on that I was interested to know if you think Canada granting her asylum was a political move. We know that there is tension between the two governments. So do you believe that Canada granting Graf asylum was political? From a human perspective, I think this girl was in need of protection and Mm -hmm. she got that protection. That's the most important aspect. But of course, if we look at it, there was a strain and tension between the Saudi-Canadian relationship when the Canadian demanded uh, more information about all Saudi women's rights activists who've been actually demanding for years, for decades, to allow women to drive a car are today behind bars. And when the Canadian asked about their fate and demanded more information, uh, the Saudis responded in a very aggressive manner where they cut relationship with the Canadian government. Of course, it, it is political, but do I really care? I don't. 
the most important thing is that there was a, a life in danger mm. and the Canadian managed to save it. And the most important thing is to draw our attention to the main issue. Let's question the Saudi government uh, oppressive nature of changes. Let's question the Saudi government about all those incredible Saudi women's rights activists who are still behind bars. Mm who are actually objected to torture and sexual harassment by close aides to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. You know, the number of people who've been imprisoned during the leadership of King Salman and his son, crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, it's unprecedented. It never happened in the Saudi history. So, I mean, now you're no longer only sent behind bars because you're criticizing the royal family. You know, an economist like Isam al-Zamil, who just from an economic point of view, criticized the Saudi decision to sell some of part of the Aramco, the largest oil company in the world, he also was imprisoned. So I think we need to shift now the perspective and the discussion mm -hmm. around the development taking place in Saudi Arabia. We need to shed the light about prisoners of conscience, about the war crimes committed in Yemen, about all the, you know, major decision that is not impacting only Saudi Arabia, but all, the whole region. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason I also mentioned the issue of Canada stepping in, whether that was political, is also because I noticed many people over social media bringing to attention stories of other women seeking asylum, including the story of one Yemeni woman who I believe was trying to seek asylum both in Canada and the U.S. and has been struggling to get that. Mm. So the issue of hypocrisy of of Canada in this case. I read that there yeah. are thousands of hanging applications when it comes to people yeah. seeking asylum. Mm. So what, definitely understand what you're saying, but I'm also interested mm. in mm. how international relations play out in this type of case. Well, I didn't deny that there is a possibility or well, mm. Canada had a chance to, you know, to hit back Saudi Arabia after all the fuss was made because of the Canadian foreign minister comment on the Saudi women's rights activists who are in jail today. But to me, mm -hmm. uh, what matters is what was the cause that led Rahaf to be there in Canada in the first place? Mm -hmm. It's the fact that this regime did not change its stance on women. It did not improve the situation of women. And when it comes to the fact of hypocrisy, I, I don't know about the process of um, asylum seeking in Canada, mm -hmm. but what, what I see as a person who grew up in Saudi Arabia, the differences between Canada and Saudi Arabia, that you have sort of check and balance. You have law in place. But in a country like Saudi Arabia, you don't have a civil society. Mohammed bin Salman have more more than 12 uh, titles, all the way from defense minister to the crown prince to the deputy prime minister to all the way down to, you know, the head of the Kamal Club. And on the top of that, you have a system where women go to the police to report their abusive male relative. And the police, instead of taking their report into seriously and trying to provide protection, they ask the women to actually ask their abusive male relative to come Mm -hmm. and sign on the report because they are minor. They are perceived as a minor. Mm -hmm. So what matters for me is to focus of what made the case of Rahaf the case of Rahaf. Mm -hmm. Is, in fact, the situation of women in Saudi Arabia. Well, if Canada 
use this or not uh, they don't use it well they politicize it that's another issue and i leave it to those who think it's much more important than protecting uh, a woman's life we should also mention that western states still enable largely enable this government to do what it does we haven't yes. seen serious challenges uh, despite the fact uh, that there was a huge international momentum around the Khashoggi case including in the U.S. And so far, we haven't seen serious movement on the issue of weapons sale, military support, all of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's hypocrisy. That's one of the major reasons that contribute to the resilience of the Saudi regime. Uh, Of course, the fact that one of the main reasons why the war until now in Yemen is not succeed, it's because there are so many Western countries are making profits of the continuation of war for selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. That's hypocrisy because at one hand, those countries are claiming to uphold international human rights norm, but at the same time, that's not for the people in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. as long as there is a profit. And on the top of that, in the middle of all these dramatic changes and the crackdown on the informal civil society that existed in Saudi Arabia, and all those critical and incredible reformists and activists in the kingdom, Saudi Arabia now is actually has a seat in the UN Human Rights Council and also the UN Women's Rights Committee. Mm-hmm. Personally, I believe in constructivism where sometimes you need to invite some authoritarian state into the international community so that they could socialize into a human rights norm and they could learn from it. But I believe that doesn't work with Saudi Arabia because they use their economic and financial political leverage to push other actors to accept the statue quo in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. But even to block and intimidate states who are trying to question uh, the issue of women, the migrant worker or other issues in the country. Mm-hmm. Having this country in the UN Human Rights Council or the, the Women's Rights Committee actually contributes to somehow to commit all these violations because it provides immunity. It doesn't hold them accountable. And until we had to witness this murder killing of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So I think we need to make a sort of reassessment and push for this perspective. And if you notice, unlike the grave reaction of the Saudi government when the foreign minister made that comment on Twitter, this time they did not make a single official comment. They kept a low profile. They didn't say more than this is a private issue, right? And they selecting this path only because of Jamal Khashoggi. They're trying to weather the storm and to avoid further diplomatic crisis at the moment. But do you think Rahaf's story of her escaping her family and the large international attention that came with that perhaps pushed the conversation about women's rights in Saudi Arabia, internationally or even within, from following the conversations within the Saudi society. There has been a lot of Arab media coverage as well. Um, And I think there has been also some thoughtful pieces that talked about whether this incident is perhaps benefiting or making Saudi women and their demands even more vulnerable. I'm thinking also of the story of Lujain al-Hadloul. Within days of Rahaf's story, her sister, Alia, she wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times in which she revealed that her sister 
Dr. Lujain, who is one of the prominent uh, Saudi women currently in jail mm. because of her advocacy for women's rights and ability to drive. She revealed in that opinion piece in the New York Times mm. that her sister has been tortured, threatened with rape, mm. and gravely mistreated while mm. being in Saudi detention. We should point out that Lujain was arrested or her latest arrest happened right before the lifting of the ban on Saudi women's right to drive. It seems to me like there is this thing going on, almost like a conundrum for Saudi women fighting for their rights. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, sometimes it feels too little, too late. Those women have been arrested since May last year. And we start hearing about their stories It became much more visible and much more spoken up uh, after the death of Jamal Khashoggi. The tragedy of Lujain and all her fellow activists, those are incredible, incredible women. And it's the tale and the struggle of Saudi, you know, women's rights movement that starts in 1990. You know, that was the time where 47 Saudi women during the Iraq invasion in Kuwait, where they witnessed Kuwaiti women driving car inside the kingdom, escaping the war, and American female soldier <laughs> driving in the city of Riyadh. And this raised the question why those women are driving in our country while we are denied the right to sit behind the wheel. So they organized and they arranged the first Saudi women's demonstration to demand end of driving the ban. Those four incredible, courageous, amazing Saudi women who staged the first Saudi movement, the historical first Saudi movement, they were uh, in prison, their passports were confiscated, uh, they were expelled from schools, they faced collective punishment. The person who was actually behind oversaw this punishment was Salman bin Abdulaziz. He was the former governor in Riyadh and he is the current king of Saudi Arabia. 27 years later, his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he decides to allow women to drive a car on one hand. And on the other hand, the, the regime calls all prominent women's rights activists, including Lujain and her fellow sister who are in detention today, and demanded them to not comment on the regime decision to allow women to drive a car. And this shows you the contradiction in, in the system where they want to demonstrate that this is a decision was given by the king to the people, while in fact, it was a long struggle from 1919 to 2011 to 2013, where Lujain staged October demonstration, and she was one of those who called for women to drive a car. Nevertheless, that the fact that those women were arrested right after allowing women to drive a car, it did not get attention, while all media was parachuting inside the kingdom to cover this historical moment. No one was paying attention to the ordeal of those women in Saudi Arabia. And you know, Lujain, she is an incredible woman. She comes from a privileged Saudi family. She would have just had a good life, enjoying all her privileges, you know. But she's an organic intellectual person who refused to live in this way and instead fought to have an equal right and gender equality for her and for everyone in her country. So, of course, it's very important and good that those women's stories are coming up. 
those are just a few samples of many other Saudi women are still behind bars. Many knows about Lujain because we have here pictures, but there are others that we don't have a picture, like Nova Abdelaziz and Maya Zahrani and many others, whom we don't know their fate until today. So what we need is to do whatever it takes to pressure the Saudi government to release these women immediately without any conditions. I salute the courage of her sister, uh, Alia, to write this uh, article. It's not easy knowing that the Saudi regime uses a collective punishment to ensure silencing the family member of dissidents or prisoners of conscience. But her article came when the reports and the news were coming out about the torture and sexual harassment incidents that those Saudi women rights activists face inside Saudi jail. And when her father tweeted indirectly confirming these news, and this went viral and just one day later, he had to disappear from Twitter. So it's very good and important that Alia article came out. And, and I think Saudi women's movement and Saudi women's activists, they are in immense solidarity and support to push the Saudi government to release them immediately. Of course, Rahaf case is encouraging other women who are actually suffering under the guardianship system and gender-based violence to choose the path, you know, to escape the country and seek refugee. But not, this is not only for women, but also, you know, uh, a dissident Saudi men who cannot express their thoughts or opinion and live safely. So actually, there is, of course, a risk for mass immigration. Mm. And when I'm Saudi Arabia, I talked to some Saudis who actually already was considering the option of migrating from the kingdom. There is stifling uh, environment and there is an oppression. In fact, I think two years ago, for the first time in Saudi Arabia history, Majlis Shura, the national uh, Saudi assembly, which its member appointed by the kingdom, and basically it's called the consultative body, mm. they only consultative role, uh, they were discussing the issue of a million Saudi who migrated from the country in one year. Wow. Yes. So even the government is admitting that this is becoming an issue. Mm. Is this uh, mostly men or is it both men and women? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we don't know the numbers uh, there, exactly. There was just a general number without mm. a clear statistic on on male and female. Mm. But I I believe it's at the moment the scale of repression in Saudi Arabia is so high, and there is an increase in gender-based violence and these neoliberalism policies and privatization is start impacting people's lives. And you know, Saudi Arabia for the first time it has introduced some form of taxation where people has to pay like 5% of their tax without any representation. So there is a sense of frustration among the Saudi population. So I believe that the number of people escaping Saudi Arabia and seeking refugee across Europe and Western countries will probably increase. Hannah, we are based in the U.S., Many of our listeners are in the U.S. So I don't know if you have any final thoughts based on everything you've been telling us, especially about the cases of these women activists who dared to actually challenge this regime. One key source of survival to this brutal regime is the American administration. 
or, Be- or Trump administration. In fact, if American citizen could call their, you know, their representative to try to push them to pressure the Saudi regime, hold them accountable for all violations committed against those women's rights activists. I think this is very crucial. The Historically, Saudi Arabia doesn't have any source of legitimacy. Its source of legitimacy has been based on securing, you know, support from American administration to survive. And Islam was constructed as their source of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And the third one is oil, was all the time a third source of legitimacy where the regime all the time tried to, you know, portray the king uh, distributing this uh, rentier system, uh, distributing services for free and return for loyalty. Now, economically, Saudi Arabia is facing pressure and therefore all these diversification and new liberalism policies are introduced in the country in order to survive the drop in oil prices because the country is no longer able to provide all services for free without taxation, right? But the neoliberalism policies in a country that is authoritarian creates a class issues. There is an increased poverty, which is a taboo in a country, in an oil country, Saudi Arabia. You know, an official statistic that there are around 4 million Saudi who live under the poverty line in an oil-rich country. When it comes to Islam, Mecca and Medina, which is the two holy sites for Muslims around the world, has been all the time used as a source for legitimacy and survival to the kingdom. And it's no wonder that the king's title is the custodian of the two holy cities. And also guaranteeing support from the religious establishment. But you know what? The religious establishment in Saudi Arabia has been weakened. They are only servant. Their role has been neutralized for years. They receive salary from the king. So they're going to provide whatever fatwa, whatever statement that the king requests. And the third and the most important source of survival and legitimacy is the American administration. And the policies that Trump has adopted, the friendly relation to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, has emboldened him actually Mm -hmm. to commit war crimes in Yemen, emboldened him to commit human rights violations, to imprison all these great numbers of uh, peaceful reformists and activists. Like Khashoggi. Yes, like Khashoggi. And this is, I mean, the tragedy with the Khashoggi case is the fact that he was a person who was close to the establishment. Mm -hmm. So if this happens to a person who was close to the establishment and he was dismembered in a third country, what happens to those who we don't know about and who are dissidents Mm -hmm. inside the country or behind bars? So we cannot afford more tragedies in Saudi Arabia. And you know, there is a saying that what happens inside Saudi Arabia doesn't stay inside Saudi Arabia. It will have an implication in the region. And we already have enough conflicts and wars 
in this region. We don't want to create another one. So we need to stop talking about fake reforms in Saudi Arabia and talk about this crisis of legitimacy, talk about oppression and oppressive regimes in the kingdom and try to push for a genuine reform that includes, you know, separation of power, opening the space for civil society, you know, allowing freedom of expression and releasing all prisoners unconscious and, you know, ending all these secret trials waged against dissidents mm-hmm. in the kingdom. Hana Al-Khamari is a writer and analyst who has worked as a journalist in Saudi Arabia and is currently based in Sweden. She writes for The Washington Post and Al Jazeera English, among other publications. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Women Journalists in Gender Apartheid Saudi Arabia. For Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, I'm Mira Nabulsi. Now we turn to labor protests in Iran. The most recent round of workers' protests at the Haftape sugarcane factory in Ahwaz, in southwestern part of Iran, has been getting attention, mainly because the protest stretched over several weeks in November and December of last year, and the protesting workers succeeded in mustering support from other civil society groups and labor activists. The security forces arrested more than 18 protesters, including Ismail Bakhshi, one of the protest leaders, and Sepide Gulyan, a journalist and a labor activist. Experts argue that the resurgence of labor protests in Iran embodies the aspiration of millions of workers who've been impacted by neoliberal policies, privatization of industries, corruption, and the deepening wealth inequality in the country. Mohammad Pur Abdullah is a former student activist from Iran. He was a member of a leftist student organization and was expelled from the University of Tehran, imprisoned for three years, and then forced to exile. He currently lives in New York and conducts research focusing on the Iranian revolution. I think the reason that they got so tensions were was that they were very courageous and they were persistent and they kept uh, striking for a long time. They actually had many, many strikes in past year or year and a half. And, you know, each time government was neglecting and they, they felt that they can control the situation, but they didn't deliver anything. And they were hoping that the, the workers will give up at some point, but they did not give up. Besides that, the, the general economic situation has worsened. 
And especially in that province, in province of Khuzestan, which is in northwestern Iran, there are a lot of, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of natural catastrophes. There is a huge water crisis. The air is polluted. The, a combination of all these issues have uh, made the life for the workers of Haftape and other factories around unbearable. And I think they are in in a situation, very classical uh, situation, that they have nothing else to lose but their chains. That's why they kind of went mad. They did not stop. And they went on to get the, what they want. The government was not willing to give it back to them until it became a national crisis. And the persistence of it, uh, of course, and the courage and very, very enlightening speeches that Ismail Bakhshi had and went viral on the Internet, was uh, seen and read by everyone. That brought him and the, the whole issue into the center of attention. Mohammed, what sparked these protests in the first place? Labor unrest has been going in Iran, uh, I mean, always, especially in probably in the last 10 years. But this one is probably a very quintessential example of what's happening in Iranian economy, in Iranian labor. In 2005-2006, government reduced the import tariff for sugar from 130% to about 4%. Since then, uh, sugar import has flooded the markets and, I mean, of course, it's a, with, a, with a very cheap price. Thus, the production of sugar has lost its economic logic. And because of that, this sugar cane company, which was responsible for a big chunk of production of sugar in the Iranian market before that, started to have crisis and problems and it could not afford the wages, it could not manage itself, it could not go on. Also, what happened was because they saturated the market and imported sugar, when this factory was going to sell sugar to the Iranian government, they would not buy it. Well, that's exactly true. Let me give you some numbers. In 2005, right after the reduction of tariffs, the consumption of sugar in Iran was about 1.9 million tons annually. Production was still 1.4 million but import was 2.3 million tons, 2.3 million. You can always guess why this is happening, because there are some people who have an interest in importing sugar, and they don't really care about the status of production and the status of industry uh, in the country and what happens to the workers, what happens to the you know, long-term prospect of economic growth in the country, etc., etc. And as it's usually the case, privatization usually happens with these scenarios. You have a group of people, an interest group, if you want to call it. Mostly they are tied to the regime, to at least to some sections of regimes, and they do have an interest in importing and not producing. They put some new measures on tariffs, they reduce the tariffs, and then after that, because there is no economic reason for continuation of production, they say that, okay, this company is not economically feasible anymore, so we have to sell it to the private sector because they think that the private sector can manage it much better. And the company was privatized in 2015, and as Esmail Bakhshi, the very courageous worker who is still in prison, has told repeatedly, they don't know who has bought this company, they don't know who owns this company right now. They, have, they just know a name, a name with no face, the owner or the owners do not really appear in the company. The production has been kind of abundant. And the only reason that the company is still there and is working is that there are workers there who have worked there for a long time, 
That's their job. That's the only way that they can make a living. That's why they are persisting that we have to uh, take this company back. We have to nationalize it again. And this has been the, the center of the contention. This company, I read that it's worth $213 million, but it was yeah. sold for only $2 million. Almost half of its workforce are contract employees. And also, this company has been around for 50 years. So yes. what happened after the privatization? How did that worsen the conditions of, for these workers? Let me start with this. Uh, let me actually criticize the very mainstream critique of government uh, regarding this issue. It's usually said when it comes to the specific uh, examples in economy, cases of this company or that company, it's usually said by the so-called reformists in Iran, the, the mainstream opposition to the Islamic Republic, internal opposition. It's usually said that this is a very bad privatization. This is a failure in privatization. This is a bad version of privatization mm -hmm. or something like this. Uh, as if there is a good version in yeah. which uh, the company goes to, it, to, uh, to someone who deserves it and with its real price and everything else is, you know, just in place. Uh, I don't really think that that's the case in Iran. I don't think that this has been the case ever in Iran or any other country. Uh, I think if you just look at the uh, the history of privatization in the countries which have experienced uh, a, a wave of privatization, you see the same thing. In, after fall of the Soviet Union, uh, most of the massive companies of the Soviet government were sold to Russian oligarchs with a, about a tenth of its original price. So I don't think that this should surprise anyone. Yes, as you said, the uh, company was sold to someone, definitely is that someone was a friend or relative or someone who had a connection in government, uh, much less price. And then after that, there was no oversight, there was no regulation, there was no safety regulation, there was no, there was no, not even an oversight of the implementation of existing labor code. And as you said, the bulk of the workers who work there, they do not have a fixed contract, they are not hired. This is the condition that has been going in Iranian economy since 1990s and has you know, ex just exacerbated since then. When we look at other labor protests, for example, the protests by steel workers in Ahvaz, Karkhane Fulad Ahvaz, that company is owned by Banke Meli, the Iran's national, national bank, which is a government entity. Even there, we see that a lot of these workers have been on the street protesting, demanding fair wages, demanding back pay. Of course. I mean, even in this uh, case of Haftapeh, as I told you, privatization happened in 2015. Yes. But the reduction of tariff, which was the starting point of the problem and the crisis was in 2005 or six. So the company was in a very bad situation for about 10 years. And in all those 10 years, there were waves of protests and strikes and unrest. But then in 2015, it got to a point that it became bad enough for the government to sell it. And that's probably that's going to happen with uh, steel in, mm. in Ahvaz too. So this is this is how it works. You have companies under government, and they are not functioning for many reasons. Well, of course, sanctions are there. You know, there are there are many multiple reasons. No one is saying that it's not working because solely and only government is responsible. But still, it's not working. It's not visible. It's not functioning. 
the workers are not getting paid, the production is not going on. That's why after a while, those companies are sold to a private sector. But after they're sold to private sector, the people who buy it, they have more incentives to use that you know, land or that building or whatever else there is, the capital, the physical capital, for something else. There are cases that people have got loans, people have bought different factories from government, and they have got loans to rebuild it, to renovate it, to expand the production, but instead they have closed the company, they have destroyed the buildings, and they have set up a, a shopping mall. Another thing that I think should be mentioned is that the Iranian economy has not only privatized, it has gone towards an unproductive direction. The economic structure is in a way that unproductive activities like importing, selling, retail, they're more profitable than production. That's why if, when they are privatized, they're usually not, I mean, the productions are not enhanced or not even you know, kept at the level. The production comes down and after a while, you know, eventually the, the, the owner says that this doesn't make sense. We have to switch to something else. Okay, what about selling iPhones which are smuggled from Iraq? So let's go and do that. The Haftape protests ended in late December with workers being paid from what I've read and the factory reopening. Can you give us an update about what has happened since the reopening of the factory? Well, Actually, it's, uh, it has two dimensions. It's a uh, you know, classic carrot and a stick. What you just said was the carrot part. Mm. Yes, the country has been opened. The workers have been paid because they know that they cannot control the unrest if all the workers are unsatisfied. So they know that they have to separate them. They have to pay them. They have to actually postpone whatever economic plan that they had for that company to keep the political elements out, to suppress them in time, to demonize them, in other words, to annual the political threat and deal with economic issues later. So this was the carrot part that you said. The stick part was that many members of the sugarcane union were arrested, as you know. Notable among them was Ismail Bakshi. So the reason that we're not seeing any strikes or protests since December is that, well, workers have been compensated to some extent. Actually, I probably have to say they have been bribed because I think we know and I'm sure that they also know that this is not going to last for a long time. This is probably temporary. The economic problems will sooner or later appear again. Mm. But this is the, the carrot part for now until they are using the stick for people like Ismail Bakshi. Talking about Ismail Bakshi, one of the leaders of Haftape Sugarcane Factory protests, he was arrested in November, freed after a few weeks, publicly wrote about being tortured. Then he was coerced into confessing, and the tape was aired on Iran's government-run Islamic Republic of Iran mm-hmm. Broadcasting, IRIB, some of our listeners might be familiar with its English language propaganda outlet, Press TV, which also has aired forced confessions of political prisoners and journalists. And then he was rearrested along with journalists and a young activist, Sepi de Rolian. Tell us about why he was arrested and why his case is getting so much attention domestically. And yes, uh, well, beside that, I think there is also another specific character of this unrest is that unlike protests in big cities in Tehran in 2009 under what was called Green Movement then, 
which was sort of a pro-democracy and liberal agenda protests. This is purely economical and social justice demanding. Mm. And this is a direct targeting of the ideology of the Islamic Republic. Uh, Islamic Republic has a true poor ideology. Of course, it's only, I mean, it's only an ideology. It's only in, in words. But it, uh, it is, you know, it represents itself as the government of the poor and the dispossessed uh, in Iran, and not only in Iran, in, across the Muslim world and even the world. So it's hard for the Islamic Republic, for the body of the supporters of the uh, Islamic Republic, to see that someone who is asking and demanding social justice is going on protest in this way, so severe. So that's another, I would say, legitimacy crisis for Islamic Republic. And that's why they had to arrest him and they had to make a fake scenario of him uh, being connected to some, some foreigner plot, to some Iranian opposition parties in Europe, and then connect them indirectly to you know, espionage or connection. Agents of United Israel. States and yeah, Israel. United yeah. States and Israel. And it's you know, kind of ridiculous because they have a hard time in making this scenario. It might be much easier to connect a middle-class student who is protesting for democracy mm. to I don't know, the United States, but it's so hard to connect someone with socialist ideology, a worker who is not going out for freedom only. He is asking, he is demanding, he is actually crying for his wage, for his living. So it's much harder to connect such a person to the United States, which is, if anyone has studied history of the 20th mm. century, that's never been the case that the United States supports such people. The realities in Iran are dictating what these protests are all about. Yes, yes. Well, they are denying the, that economic reality. And the economic reality, which is probably this is important to note, because uh, the audiences of this program are mostly non-Iranians or living in the United States or the West. Of course, the sanctions are responsible for the severity of the, the economic situation in Iran to some extent, but we should never neglect, we should never ignore the internal factors. We should never neglect what's happening now, what has been happening since 90s, privatization, corruption, mismanagement, etc., etc. So, of course, it's a mixture of internal and external factors which have led to this economic catastrophe, but the external factors are probably clear to see from the United States. The internals are less clear, are a little bit opaque, and this is probably we should focus on them more. Going back to Mr. Ismail Bakhshi, there is a campaign for his release. It's really well documented that Iranian regime and its security agencies have been using smear campaigns, tortured, forced confessions against activists, journalists, political prisoners. You were in prison for three years because of your activism as a university student, and you were also forced to confess on camera. You just made a YouTube video speaking about not only your own experience, but also the circumstances under which Mr. Bakhshi confessed and also this kind of very strange, bizarre video that the Iranian state media stitched together. 
What is the end goal for the regime at this point today in coercing Ismail Bakhshi to appear on national TV and creating this very amateurish and bizarre and surreal video? Well, let me start with the history of forced confession. This is not a new phenomenon, Iran, as probably you know. The forced confessions started right after the revolution in early 1980s. The first people who appeared on the camera were you know, employees and authorities of the former regime, especially Savak, the secret police. And then later in 1981-82, there were, you know, leaders of Tudeh Party, the Iranian Communist Pro-Soviet Party. They confessed and they confessed that they were spying for Soviet Union, etc., etc. So since then, it became a stigma for political activists to go to prison and confess because the two the leaders were seen by many people as traitors. And this stigma continued to exist, that if you go to prison, you have to resist, you have to keep your heads up and don't do this forced confessions, which is, of course, a good thing to do. But what I was trying to say in that video was that the conditions of political struggle is much more humane than this very abstract and heroic stances. People who go to prison are normal people. They are people who have, like anyone else, they have a certain amount of tolerance for torture. And torture, I should explain this, torture does not only mean physical torture. Mm-hmm. One thing that they use the most against anyone, almost anyone who is in Iranian prisons for political reasons, is solitary confinement. As I said in the in that video or, or in another interview, if you are kept in solitary confinement for 40 days and then you, you're you done with interrogations and you know that you're going to be released soon on, on a bail, but they, they ask you to come in front of TV and confess and then you say no and then they tell you, they threaten and they do that, they're not bluffing. They say that if you don't do that, yeah, you will be released, but you, you will stay in solitary for another 40 50 days. And that's enough to break you down. So the point that I was trying to make in that video is that the continuation of this public confessions, forced confessions and recantations since 1980s has really changed its uh, impact on the people. People do not really believe that anymore as they did in in 1980s. Uh, Almost everyone knows that these confessions are forced. Especially when you see in a case like Ismail Bakhshi, that the guy is saying something before going to prison and he's saying the same thing after being released from prison. But he's saying the opposite thing when he's on TV. So I think there is only one conclusion, one explanation for this. And that's he was forced to do that. Mohammad Pur Abdullah is a former student activist from Iran. He was a member of a leftist student organization and was expelled from the University of Tehran, imprisoned for three years and then forced to exile. He currently lives in New York and conducts research focusing on the Iranian revolution. I am Malihe Razazan and from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi, 
is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.